been going through an Advent series, and Advent simply means coming. This is the season of Advent. It is a season where we recognize and anticipate and prepare ourselves for the celebration of the first coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is a time that is so easily... It is easy to become distracted because there is so much going on. Schedules are hectic and life just gets busy and we get caught up into the rush of things. And so oftentimes it's easy to think about everything except really what this whole thing is about. This whole thing is really about God sending forth good news. And so as we continue our study in this Advent season, hopefully you've had opportunities to maybe read some Advent devotionals. I know I sent, sent you all some, and some of you have found uh, various ones on your own. And uh, just to kind of keep you in remembrance of what this season is all about. Today I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. As we consider what Paul says about the gospel, let me give you, well, let me read this, and then I will uh, give you a little bit of a background, give you some setting as to where we're going to be going with all of this, and give you some background. But I think this is a very important, a very important passage of scripture to point us to both the first coming and the fulfillment of the first coming. That Jesus just didn't come in a manger as a baby. But like the song we just sang, he grew in wisdom and stature with men. He was placed on a cross. He was crucified three days later. He rose again from the dead. After that, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. That's the Christmas story. And so, I just want to read the first few verses of the book of Romans and then try to apply this to what we're dealing with here in this Christmas season, in this Advent season. So, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just give you a little bit of the, the setting here as Paul begins to unfold this Romans is maybe one of the most profound letters in all of Scripture. Many of you, if I were to ask you what is your favorite book in the Bible, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you said Romans. And uh, this introduction is not just some formality. It is a powerful introduction. It is a powerful statement of what we believe. And Paul begins by saying, Paul, upon servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul begins by saying, I am an apostle.
apostle, but first of all, I am a bond servant. Before we get into titles, before we get into callings, before we get into what has God set forth in my life, sometimes we ask, I wonder what God has for my life. Many of you have probably asked that question. What does God want me to do? Before Paul gets in and tells us what God has called him to do, and perhaps before we begin asking, what has God called us to do? Paul identifies himself as a bond servant. This is really a nice way of saying that Paul was a slave. I think slave is probably the more... I don't want to say accurate, but maybe the more vivid translation of this word, but because of American sensibilities and sensitivities, many translators might say bond servant. That's a good translation. But Paul says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And even in Paul's day, and in our day, this is a very dark, this word conjures up a very dark image. Slavery in Paul's day was certainly different than slavery uh, that occurred in our country, but it was still a very difficult situation. Slaves had certainly some rights in Roman culture. Doctors and lawyers and and, uh, various professionals were slaves. Some of them owned property and homes, and some of them did very, very well. But make no mistake about it, a slave was not a free person. And Paul takes this word and he embraces it. Rather than shunning it, rather than rejecting it, rather than saying we want nothing to do with it, Paul takes this word and he embraces it. This is not uncommon. We find Christians throughout uh, in the New Testament, they take various words that were common in their culture and they embrace them. In fact, the very word Christian was a word that was was a belittling term. It was not one to identify you as some some place of nobility. It was a term of belittlement. It was a term of derision. And the Christians said, fine, if that's what we are, that's what we'll be. And they took the term and they embraced it. And Paul takes this term of of a slave and he embraces it and says, that's who I am. Now think about it. We We don't like to consider this idea too often in our modern culture we like to think of ourselves as having some autonomy Paul thought to himself I have no autonomy I am completely sold out to Jesus Christ and as a slave if he says jump I jump And my will is now his will. And my ways are now his ways. And whatever he tells me to do, that I will do. If he tells me to walk into a city that will persecute me for the sake of the gospel, then there I go. If he says, get on a ship and go to such and such a place, though that is treacherous, I'll get on that ship and I'll go to such and such. If he says, don't go here, I won't go there. Paul takes this I know we... We like to think of ourselves, and the Bible has various terms for Christians. The Bible talks about us as children of God. That's a great term, and it's a truth. The Bible talks about us as being friends of God. That's a, that's a great truth. But before Paul gets into any of that, he says, first and foremost, I'm a slave. 
and Christ is my master. Yes, I am a friend of God. Yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I am a citizen of the kingdom. But first and foremost, I am a slave. And whatever my master tells me to do, that I will do. So this is a very dark image, but Paul embraces it. And he says, I will do whatever my Lord tells me I must do. Paul says, Paul, a bond servant, slave of Christ Jesus. By, by the way, we should also understand that, <clears throat> wow, this has some very dark connotations for us as it did for Paul. I want you to understand that a servant is the highest calling that God places upon any individual. There is no higher calling that he will call a person to. When you die, what is it you want to hear when you step over eternity? Well done, good and faithful, what? Servant. God will place no higher title upon any of his people other than a slave. You are my slave. You are my servant. You are my bond servant. Well done. Paul says, well, that's my first calling. That's my primary calling. But God has now given me certain tasks. As his servant, as his bond servant, God has given me certain tasks. Called as an apostle. That's my calling. My identity is a servant of Jesus Christ, but my calling is that of an apostle. An apostle really is just somebody who was sent out. Paul says, that's what I do. I'm sent out. Paul also tells us, I was called as an apostle. In other words, I didn't make myself an apostle. This is a, this is a calling that God gave me. Basically, I am an authoritative representative. And I go out and I represent the one who called me. Paul also recognizes that this calling came even before he was born. If you will uh, consider in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 15, or verse 15. I don't know if I have it there on the screen or not. But um, Paul puts forth in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, he says, But when God had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God set me apart. When did God set me apart? Paul has this idea that from the very beginning, that Paul throughout his life, he was a persecutor of the church, that even from the very beginning, even in his mother's womb, God had a plan for Paul. And that plan was to call him to be an apostle, to go to the nations, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. God had been planning long before Paul was born. I want you to understand that you and your life is no mere accident. Paul's calling as an apostle was not an anomaly. It wasn't something reserved because he was some great man. But I want you to understand that God has called you to proclaim the gospel. God has set you apart to serve Him and to honor Him. I don't know how. 
Well, if you're wondering what that is, maybe we can sit down and discuss some of those things. Paul says, I'm first of all, I am a bondservant, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, as a slave, this is what he wants me to do. He's going to send me out, and I'm going to proclaim the gospel of God. That's what I'm going to do. And, Paul, and God had this plan. You are not just a haphazard culmination of a bunch of biological mistakes. The world will tell you that you are. That's what the wisdom of the age will tell you, is that you just came about by accident and you're just muddling through, inching along until the day you breathe your last breath, and then you're going to dissolve and you're going to cease to exist. And God says, no, I have called you from even before you knew you were called. And I've set you apart to do certain things. Basically, you have, he's called you to glorify him. Are we glorifying him? Are we doing what he's called us to do? Maybe it's not to be an apostle. Maybe it's to be a good mom or a good dad and to raise your children to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe that's what God has called you to do. Maybe it's to be a nurse or a doctor or an accountant. And in doing so, you will glorify Christ. So Paul is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We need to talk a little bit about this idea of the gospel of God. Gospel is one of those terms we throw around a lot. As Christians, we talk a lot about the gospel. It's gospel this and gospel that. And we go to a gospel church and hear the gospel and pray the gospel. And the gospel is this and the gospel is What is the gospel? Gospel is just another one of those words that Christians took out of their culture and embraced it and made it their own. That's all it is. And it's simply, it's, the Greek word is euangelion, and it just simply means good news. But not just any good news. Often it was used to uh, announce if a king had a child, proclaimers would go out through all the towns announcing the good news. The king has had a son. And they would go through all of the little towns and hamlets and villages proclaiming the euangelion, the good news. The king has had a son. Or perhaps there's a new king who's seated on the throne. The euangelion, the good news, would go forth and proclaimers would go forth all across the countryside proclaiming the euangelion, the good news. So you can see why Christians saw in this term something that applied to exactly their message. We have a good news. The king has, has come and is seated on the throne and has forgiven the debts of the rebels who have come against him. And he has said, if you have rebelled against me, if you say I want to be on your side, he will forgive you of your rebellion. And the you on him, Paul says, I... That's what I am. I'm called as a proclaimer. I'm called as a representative to go out and proclaim the good news. This is the gospel of God. It's not the gospel of Caesar. It's not the euangelion of the United States of America. 
It is the gospel of God. God is now sending forth His people. Paul says, I'm that ambassador. I'm one of those ambassadors. And I'm going forth. And I'm going into the hamlets, into the towns, and into the cities, and into the highways, and the byways. And to everybody who has it here, I am proclaiming that the King has forgiven your rebellion. And you can come and have peace with the King of the universe. It is the gospel of God. So that's kind of how he begins his letter. I love verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did you know that this gospel of God, this euangelion of God, this proclamation of the good news is not something that's really new? I know oftentimes we think that the New Testament is the New Testament, the Old Testament is the Old Testament. Fine. I just want you to understand that the Christian religion did not begin 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. It did not begin 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. The crucifixion of Christ. That is not when this, our faith began. Do you know when our faith began? And God made man in his own image. At least that's when it began for us. It probably began much before that. Somebody once said, the gospel is the flower of the Old Testament seed. That's one of the things we're trying to do as we've been studying in Genesis. We've been trying to connect the, the Old Testament with the New Testament. I know I hear people all the time say, oh, you know... In fact, I was, I'm reading a book right now, and it's a very, very well-researched book. It's, it's a wonderful book, but I just came across this thing that as well-researched as this book is, he even said, there's that Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And I just thought, you know, they're the same. <laughs> um, people tend to think that the Old Testament is this God of wrath and the New Testament is this God of mercy. You wait, because in late January, we're going to be studying Revelation. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a whole lot of judgment going on. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, they didn't last long. Boom! Just like that, they're gone. Snuffed out. And how many of us have been reading about Abraham when we've been in Genesis? And what mercy and long-suffering and grace. Look at Jacob, how God was so gracious and merciful. And just put up with this guy. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I would have done it a long time ago. We see the graciousness and mercy of God. And we tend sometimes to divide God's word into the old and into the new. And God is like, no, I'm the same God. This gospel is something that God promised beforehand to his prophets. Another person said, the old is by the new explained. The new is in the old contained. The new is in the old concealed. The old is by the new revealed. Sometimes we think of the Bible as, you know, 66 books, and there's all, all these different authors, and there's 66 separate books, and, and they're not. They're, it's one author, there's one author. It's like if you read a book, you know, and there's a single editor with many contributing authors for each chapter, but they're all explaining the same theme or a very or, or something that applies to that theme. But there's one editor who's bringing all the authors together and making a single point. There are 66 books in the Bible, 
There are a variety of authors, and it spans a, a, a wide range of time, but there is one editor who brought them all together. Let me say, he's not just the editor. He actually had something to do with the author's writing. He breathed and moved through them. He moved his words, his spirit, moved them to write these things. And so we see this consistent theme all the way through Scripture. I think the more you study the Scripture, that's one reason I like people to read through the Bible, maybe in a year or two years. Hopefully you start to see themes that develop. So Christianity is not a new religion. We've all been studying in Genesis 3.15, you know, it talks about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and how there would be enmity between the two all the way through. You know, we see in Genesis 12.3 the promise to Abraham and Abraham, and God says to Abraham, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And Paul says that's the gospel preached beforehand. In Galatians, Paul calls that the gospel beforehand. And then we see in, in a... Deuteronomy 18, Moses talks about a prophet who's going to come after him and that the people should listen to him. And you'll recall in the New Testament when Jesus would be speaking or doing something, you'd hear the whispers of people, is this the prophet? He's referring back to Deuteronomy. It's not just some vague prophet. Is this a prophet? They say, is this the prophet? They're going back to the promise of Deuteronomy where Moses said, there's going to come a prophet after me and he's the guy you ought to listen to. And they're wondering, is this the guy? You can see the connection. They're all saying that we know he's coming. This is him. We see in the Psalms and in the Kings that he would be a descendant of David. And we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. And the prophets Isaiah talk about him being a suffering servant. So Christianity is not. It's just the fulfillment of what God has been doing all the way through. And God's promises beforehand promises of God are so precious. God faithfully brings to pass what He promised. And again, we're seeing that in Genesis. And when we get into Revelation, we're going to see the same thing. This is the fulfillment, the consummation of everything that God has promised. God's people suffered. God's people went through trials. They rebelled against Him. They sinned against Him. And none of that derailed the promises of God. Which he promised long beforehand through the prophets, notice this, in the Holy Scriptures. <coughs> Holy is another one of those words we toss around without always knowing exactly what it's, its meaning. Sometimes when we think of holiness, we think of purity, and certainly that is uh, right to do. But holiness has more to do with being set apart, not common. These are the Holy Scriptures, and they are set apart. These words are set apart. There are a lot of great books you can read. There are a lot of very inspired works that you can read. You can think perhaps of your favorite poet, or perhaps of some great classical work. I think when when I think of books that I think are of just infinite value, I think of Pilgrim's Progress. Simone and I always go to Handel's Messiah this time of year, It's always a blessing for us. What a marvelous piece of work. Inspired. But common. Not set apart. 
The scriptures is, God, is the word of God. It is set apart. It is not like Shakespeare or Handel's Messiah or Pilgrim's Progress or anything like that. Those are great works. And you all have your favorite authors. They're great. Read them. Enjoy them. The scripture is something different. Scriptures is God's word set apart. And it is God's word is profitable for us. For teaching and for reproof, for correction, that the person of God would be equipped for every good work. What we have in God's word is set apart. We should be very careful not to abuse it. Not to distort its meaning so that we can get away with the things we want to get away with. If you want to get away with things and just do what you want to do, just do them. Don't take God's word and twist it and make God your servant. You're God's servant. God spoke by the Holy Spirit's prophets. God spoke. The words got written down. These, these writings are not common. But they are holy. They are set apart. They are not to be bandied about. As, as I get closer and closer, as I read the scriptures more and more, and my relationship with the Lord develops and grows more and more mature. I, people start using the words of scripture for various things, perhaps for commercial enterprises or to promote a product. I just cringe. There was a time it didn't bother me, but it just bothers me now. I hear people say, oh, you know, and the truth will set you free, and it has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. I'm not saying those people are bad people. I'm just saying, you know what, those are set apart words. They're holy words. They're meant for a reason, and they communicate a truth. I think it's good if we keep them in their truth and not just use them so that we can... I don't know, get more sales of a product. So Paul's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He was called as an apostle. He was set apart from his mother's womb for the gospel, the euangelion of God, which God promised a long time ago through his prophets in the scriptures concerning his son. This may be the most important two, three words concerning his son in regards to the gospel. You see, the substance of our faith is a person. The substance of our faith is not ethics or morality, though I think Jesus taught us various lessons on ethics and morality. And I think that's a big part of Scripture. But our faith is not based upon our ethics or morality. The gospel of God is not about our constitution, our bill of rights, our electoral processes, or anything like that. It is based on a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Christianity is about Christ. First and foremost and always. There is no gospel without Jesus. Without Jesus, all we have is, is a code of ethics that you can agree with or not. Without Christ, all we have is an interesting literary 
accumulation, 66 books put together in two big divisions called the Old Testament and New Testament, and they're interesting readings and they have good lessons. The essence of the gospel is a person. I think we need to keep that in mind because in our day and age, it is easy to get wrapped up into everything but who Jesus is. And the gospel is Jesus. There is no hope of good news without him. Take Jesus out of the gospel and you have nothing. You've got nothing. I think John Stott um, said something real interesting. The personal work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take, take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. I pray that in this church that Christ remains the center. That we get not get so caught up in programs and, and, and processes and strategies. All of these things are important. But Christ needs to remain in the center of everything we do. Take him out of here and this whole thing falls apart. And really, what are we doing here? concerning a son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this is really where Advent comes in. He was born a man. <clears throat> he was a descendant of David. First of all, we need to understand um, that when Jesus came to the earth, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of the Son of God. The Bible tells us that the Son of God is eternal and uncreated. And that brings us to the very difficult concept of the Trinity. And I'm not going to try to explain it or to give you a metaphor for it. By the way, all metaphors fall short, so stop trying to bring a metaphor to it. It's clearly what the Scriptures say. Do I understand it? No, not completely. Is it clear in the scriptures? Unbelievably clear in the scriptures. Let me tell you a few other things I don't understand. I don't understand the soul. Do you believe there's a material part of a man and a material part of a man? I think there is. When you die, your body's going to go in the ground, but you're going to live on forever. There seems to be, right? When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise this afternoon, right? But his body was still on the tree. So there's an immaterial. What does that immaterial part of you look like? Where is it located? How much does it weigh? How did it get there? I don't understand it, but I believe it completely because it's very clear in Scripture. If you ask me to explain it, I, I really don't know. Is it true according to the Scriptures? It's as crystal clear as you can get. And so the Trinity. Can I explain it to you perfectly? No, I really can't. Is it crystal clear in the scripture? Absolutely. And Jesus did not come into existence at his birth. The second person of the Trinity is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, existing forever in complete unity and perfection. He is eternal. He is uncreated. Heretics 
from the very beginning said Jesus was a creation of God. Most notably, Arius said that in the 4th century. Many religions around this town will tell you the exact same thing. It's just an old Aryan heresy. Unbiblical views are prominent. The biblical view is that Jesus has always existed. And in Philippians, we read how Jesus considered that divinity, not that, oh, that's the wrong phrase. Consider that status, not something to be clung to, but he put on flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created. Who created all things? Jesus. That's what it says. If you read the context, Jesus. I don't know. I read in Genesis chapter 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do we get that? get that because Jesus and the Father are co-eternal and co-equal. All things were created, both in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, just in case you're not concerned or you're not quite sure what all means. Alright? For by him all things. Alright? If you want to parse that word out, we can. It means all. But Paul just wants to make sure in case you want to really nitpick at it and deconstruct everything. Let me just tell you what it means. In the heavens and in the earth. Visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You were created through him and you were created for him. In this Advent season, what we celebrate is that the divine Son of God, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He is a descendant of David. That is, he fulfills all the promises. Promises such as Jeremiah 23, 5. Promises such as Isaiah 11, 10. The good news is that the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you remember what Jesus' first sermon was? You can read it in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Very simple sermon. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know why he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because the king is here. The kingdom is here because the king is here. Without the king, there is no kingdom. Jesus is declaring, I'm the king, and the kingdom of heaven has come because the king is now in your midst. When Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us as a descendant of David, we see him in his humiliation. As a son, he limited himself. He became dependent, he became earthly, he became weak, he became one who suffered. He dealt with all the things that you and I dealt with. And he became a servant. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I won't do that because the Father has not given it to me to do. I don't know that because the Father hasn't told me. He completely became dependent upon the Father. Some people might ask, I wonder why Jesus, the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, had to become a man. Have you ever asked that question? Why was that necessary? Well, it just is because that's what we believe. There's reasons. Why? Let me read you something. First, it's necessary because only man can represent man. Let me 
use the words of a, an 11th century bishop by the name of that, um, Anselm. This is brilliant. This is just perfect. We love Anselm. Since we have offended an infinite God, we owe him an infinite debt. Does that make sense? But as finite creatures, we are incapable of repaying that debt. Does that make sense? We owe God an infinite debt, but we're finite. Not only are we finite, but everything we have comes from God. So if we are going to give something back to God, it's something He's already given us. It's not our own. So, so it's a debt that man owes, but only God can pay. Well, there's a dilemma, isn't it? I owe it, but only God has the resources to pay it, and I'm not God. Well, I'm in quite a conundrum here. I owe God something I can never owe, I can never pay. God has it, but God doesn't know it. In other words, we have a God-sized debt, but we are only man-sized. How can we pay? Good question. We need a God-sized man to pay. Jesus, the God-sized man, has paid the God-sized debt. Do you see why God had to become man? I believe that's in his book called Why God Became Man. This is why God had to become man. Because man owes the debt. The problem with that is man can't pay the debt, only God can pay the debt. That's why we have the perfect God man in Jesus Christ. You see the importance of that doctrine, of that truth, that God and man must dwell perfectly together in, in union. Because man owes the debt, but only God can pay it. So it's not just some mythology that, like God's put on flesh. I mean, you see in Roman and Greek mythologies, God's becoming man. You see that in Egyptian and Babylonian mythologies. This is not like that. This has nothing to do with that. This is God stooping to pay the debt that you and I incurred that we were never able to pay. That's why God came in and put on flesh. God humbled himself. Became an, put on flesh and dwelt as an infant in Bethlehem. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of of Jesus moved God moved Jesus from being the Son of God in weakness to the Son of God in power. In Genesis 28, I'm sorry, in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No longer the infant child, weak, suffering, crying, cold, hungry, fatigued, bleeding, thirsting, abandoned. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. All things have been placed under my authority. I have rule over all things. This authenticate, takes, authenticates his claim to deity. Anybody here can claim to be the Son of God. I can probably go to any state hospital and find a dozen, half a dozen people there who claim to be God. No big deal. I can claim it. You can claim it. Can you back it up? That's a different thing. Some people might be able to say, yeah, I can back it up and do some party trick. Here's what Jesus did. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I claim to be God. Here's what I'm going to do. Kill me and in three days I'll rise again. 
Now, once again, anybody can make that claim. I can make that claim. Put me to death, and in three days, I'll rise again from the dead. Yeah, but pulling that one off, now that's a different ballgame. Anybody can make the claim. Pulling that one off, that's something different. In humility, he came and lived among us and in power and glory and in divinity he rose from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. In other words, he was raised by the very spirit of God. Here we see the Trinity again. And notice Paul ends this statement with Jesus Christ our Lord. He, be, he ends the statement where he begins. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? That means that Jesus Christ is, has the sovereign right to rule over our minds, our wills, our emotion, our times, our talents, over everything. If Jesus is Lord, then he rules over everything. I would say that this is the number one reason why people do not come to know Christ. People will say, well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. It's a smokescreen. They're right to a certain degree, but it's a smokescreen. That's not why they don't they come to Christ. The reason they don't come to Christ is because Jesus demands that he be Lord. And I don't want to, so I want to be the boss of my own life. I want to rule things. He might ask me to do something I don't want to do. He might ask me to live a boring life. He might ask me to do whatever. Let me tell you, when Jesus becomes Lord, He truly becomes Lord, He will take over your life. People say He's a gentleman, and sometimes He is. And sometimes He will just come in as a despot and take over. He says, I rule. You're mine. I rule. You're not in charge, I am. As soon as we get that straight, life will be a whole lot easier. Probably the biggest difficulties and trials we have in our life is when we take over our life and don't let him rule. When we let him rule, it still may be a difficult life because he may send you to some sort, some kind of crazy situation. Okay? I'm not saying obedience is going to make life smooth sailing. I'm saying it's going to make it exciting. Let nobody ever tell you that the Christian life is unexciting. They have never surrendered themselves into the hand of the almighty, infinite God. Paul began by saying, Jesus, I am a slave of Christ. And he ends the statement by saying, Jesus is Lord. He has control over all things. So what does it mean to be called the Son of God? In Matthew chapter 14, 33, Jesus said this, And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. You remember that account there that there was a storm? And he spoke a word, and the storm ceased, and it was calm, and they said, Oh, you must be the Son of God. But they said, You just have, you have control over nature. All of nature is bows to your will. You must be the Son of God. And then we see... Next verse, Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and the answer here is amazing. Jesus says, and you'll see the Son of God coming in power, Son of Man coming in the clouds in glory and power. He's quoting Daniel. You'll have to go back and read that. But Jesus is saying, I am the judge of all the universe. Tell us, are you the Son of God? I'll tell you right now, I'm becoming and I'll be judging the world in righteousness. That's quite 
mind. What does it mean to be the Son of God? It means to have authority over nature. It means to be the one who, has, who is the rightful judge over all things. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Mark chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Being the Son of God means having authority over all creation. It means being the righteous judge of all, all the earth. And it also means having authority over hell itself. Satan has no dominion. Sometimes we think that God and Satan are counterparts. The counterpart of God is Satan. That's not true. God is a sovereign order over all things. And finally, what does it mean to be the Son of God? John 1 49. So Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel because he was able to discern the motives of Nathaniel. What does it mean to be the Son of God? What does it mean to be Lord of all things? It means that I control all of nature. I am the righteous judge. The underworld bows to my command. It means that you will be obedient and follow me wherever I go. So, I'll conclude with this. Advent is about the gospel. The gospel of God. Advent is about the good news, the euangelion, and God fulfills his promises. Advent is about the fact that Jesus humbled himself and died in our place. Advent is about the fact that death cannot hold a sinless man. Advent is about the fact that this sinless man was raised in glory and is coming again. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you. And we praise you for what you've given to us.